This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg, and welcome to episode 74 of Inside COVID-19. In this episode, two of the scientific world's leading lights warn about the thus far overlooked long-term impact of the coronavirus. And as the world's focus swings from stemming infections to beating off the virus, we take a close look at how scientists are working on how better to identify our immune responses and how these can be bolstered. In this episode, we'll get more on antibodies and immunity from the head of Discovery's Clinical Policy Unit and the Professor of Infectious Diseases and Vaccines at the La Jolla Institute in San Diego. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. In today's COVID-19 headlines, as South Africa's coronavirus cases approach 600,000 and deaths reach 12,000, the good news about slowing infection growth continues unabated. New infections on Monday at 2,541 are the lowest since June the 10th, and that's 10 weeks ago. They're down by more than 80% from the peak of late July. Mortalities, which take longer to report, as a result they lag the infection numbers, are also now in a declining trend, with the seven-day moving average having fallen in each of the last eight days. South Africa's active cases are poised to drop below 100,000 for the first time since early July. This is the 10th highest of any country, but down from the 4th and 5th position, which South Africa held in July and early August. On total deaths, the ratio here of 2% mortalities to confirmed cases remains well below the now declining global average of 3.5%. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. Go off tonight's episode with a story of credible voices warning about the long-term impact of those infected by COVID-19. Although in most people the virus causes only mild symptoms, or even none at all, evidence is growing that the effects linger. Bloomberg's Jason Gale got this insight after talking to two of the world's leading scientists, microbiologist Dr. Peter Piot and Dr. Thomas File, who's president of the Infectious Diseases of America. First was like typical flu-like syndrome, but no shortage of breath, particularly it was fever and extreme fatigue, basically. Dr. Peter Piot is one of our generation's most celebrated microbiologists. In the mid-1970s, he was part of the team that isolated the Ebola virus and helped control the first outbreak in what was then Zaire. Later, he helped lead the fight against AIDS as president of the International AIDS Society and executive director of UNAIDS. For almost a decade, he has been director of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. So it was big news when he needed to be hospitalised for COVID-19 almost five months ago. And that was uh, ironically after having spent most of my professional life fighting viruses. It was the first time ever I got seriously ill. Because my situation deteriorated, I was admitted to the hospital with my oxygen saturation was like uh, 83%. 
on admission and thanks to oxygen, I made it through seven days there. Peter is speaking in an interview with the New England Journal of Medicine. He told the journal last week that he developed pneumonia complicated by an aberrant hyperinflammatory response to the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And it illustrated that uh, COVID-19 is far more than either you have a bit of the flu or you end up in intensive care, uh, you can die, and then they often say, oh, that's people who are over 70 and uh, or with pre-existing conditions, as if we don't count. No, there are lots of people in between with this uh, chronic condition and this long tail of, in my case, pneumonia, of atrial fibrillation, extreme tachycardia all the time. Peter had an irregular and often rapid heart rate that persisted for months after his acute illness. He's 71, and he managed a five-kilometre jog the morning he was interviewed. Even still, Peter gets fatigued. He says the ordeal changed his perspective on viruses, particularly SARS-CoV-2. Well, first of all, it's something to avoid at all costs. I mean, it's a bit of a lottery uh, in a sense, whether you'll develop an asymptomatic infection or serious illness like what I had. Uh, Of course, there are risk factors, being old, having diabetes, hypertension, but I didn't have any of these underlying factors. And even young people today can die from it. There are many more and more examples, and that's particularly important to realize now that a lot of the infections are happening in young people. And the scientific evidence suggests a proportion of these patients may endure decades of chronic diseases. Doctors refer to these conditions as sequelae. When these persist in younger patients, the impact on society is much larger because people have to live longer with their disabling effects. The physician who treated UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson called COVID-19 this generation's polio because of the physical, cognitive and psychological disability the illness will leave, requiring long-term health care. I think we will be faced as a medical community also with probably soon hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people ultimately, with uh, chronic conditions, with uh, long-term sequelae. And I think it's important that we are prepared for the the fallout of chronic illness, mental health issues. And of course, in my particular case, I'm double motivated to defeat this epidemic. The coronavirus targets cells lie in the airway, sometimes triggering an overzealous immune response, like what Peter Piot experienced. That can weaken the muscles used for breathing and cause scarring in the lungs of patients who experience even a mild bout of COVID-19. The question is, how will that affect lung capacity over the long term? And what other lasting disabilities will COVID-19 survivors face? Dr. Thomas File is president of the Infectious Diseases Society of America. He says we can look for clues among people who were sickened by severe acute respiratory syndrome, or SARS, almost 20 years ago. We do know from studies uh, about that infection that people who have had um, particularly lung scarring uh, from uh, SARS that they can have uh, persistent uh, symptoms for years. And I'm aware of even one study that uh, looked at 15 years later, and some of these patients still had abnormalities uh, of their lungs. And so uh, this is something that we're going to have to watch closely, but I think we're already seeing it. Uh, we're seeing effects uh, on the lungs. We're seeing the effects on the heart, on the neuro- neurologic system the emotional system, psychological system. So this is going to have, uh, I think, a significant burden on our healthcare system for years to come. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. 
Dr. Nolatandu Nemwatsarani is the head of clinical policy with Discovery, who's been keeping her eye on uh, antibodies. Uh, that's what we're talking about this week. Antibodies are not very well understood amongst the general population. Maybe you can tell us why it's so important in the whole development of these vaccines that at some point in time antibodies are created and, and what they are. So antibodies are released uh, by the body. It's, um, you know, an immune response. So we call them your fighting cells. When you are infected or exposed to any infection, then your body will release these antibodies. They call on the army, the rest of the army in your body to fight against the infection. There are various antibodies. Some are early on in the infection. So the one that is very important there is the IgM. So if we test for antibodies and we pick up that IgM is elevated, then it almost reflects that uh, you have been recently infected. And then there's uh, the other antibodies that almost appear two weeks later, you know, after the infection has almost subsided in most cases. And these antibodies are there, then it's almost like memory of future infections. So when we test your person and we find that they've got IgG antibodies, then we know that they have been previously infected by that particular virus or bacteria or whichever infection we're referring to. And the importance of antibodies is that they do confer immunity going forward. So it is around whether these antibodies, we call them neutralizing antibodies. The presence of these neutralizing antibodies we know actually are very good in killing off the virus. What research has been focusing on, therefore, is to look at the quality of these antibodies and the amount of these antibodies in people's bodies to actually see if those who have been infected have got sufficient amounts of antibodies and also the quality that we're looking for so that if you are exposed to future infections, you are able to fight. Here in South Africa, we were talking off air about some developments on this front. Perhaps you could share those with us. So I think that the developments are around now the antibody testing itself. So I think we are aware that uh, the currently available tests in South, Af South Africa for the diagnosis of COVID-19 are the PCR rapid, uh, the RT-PCR. And, uh, you know, so these are tests. We call them molecular tests. They are, you know, in the diagnostic area and they look at viral particles. So the generation of the virus. And once they, you know, they've tested for it, they can say the person definitely does have or does not have uh, the, the infection. We do know that they are not 100% accurate, but they are relatively, you know, quite sensitive. So when we look at test kits, we look at two aspects in a test kit. We look at its sensitivity, meaning if I test you, the likelihood of me picking you up as an infected case, if you are indeed infected, and then the specificity, which says if you do not have the disease, the likelihood of me excluding the disease. So we need test kits that are highly sensitive and highly specific. So we know that the currently available tests are highly specific and, I mean, highly sensitive, even though they are not 100% specific. We know that antibodies only develop a week later after you've been infected. Uh, so from seven to 10 days and, and onwards. So it means you can be acutely ill and I can test you using an antibody test and I may still tell you that you are not infected because I'm looking for antibodies that don't usually present early on in the infection. So, so those are some of the limitations. So there have been, I mean, uh, there's been a lot of excitement around antibody test uh, kits. And some people refer to them as, you know, rapid test kits. 
because most of them, you know, the, the results, you can get them in 15 to 10, 10 to 15 minutes. So people are really looking for quick turnaround times. And also, you know, they are cheaper from a, a cost point of view. And also it is not as uncomfortable. It's just a finger prick. Now, uh, in South Africa on, the, on Friday, uh, our regulatory authority um, released uh, some approval for some of these tests to be used in our local labs, not to be used at home at, at, at present, but it does appear that uh, this has been uh, retracted at uh, the approval. Why did the authorities, the regulatory authorities, withdraw that permission? What's the story behind that? So it's, it's, it's very unclear, but from what we understand, because we do need the national guidance, uh, firstly, uh, before you can introduce test kits uh, into the environment, uh, because otherwise then there's inappropriate use, um, you know, and, and then it actually does not serve the purpose that, uh, you know, they are intended for. So from what uh, we understand is that they say they had actually approved them in error, uh, but uh, the, there's also the, the issue around the fact that, um, and I think it's just the timing. I think they will eventually approve these test kits, but uh, we do need to have the guidance in place for them to actually then be properly used. And from Discovery's perspective, once these, uh, the approval is given, will you be encouraging a greater use of the, the, the test kits? Firstly, um, our approach is that with these test kits, we will consider them uh, for funding um, if they are SAPRA approved. So they must get regulatory authorization. Secondly, they must be validated in our local setting. We must know that they are doing what they are meant to be doing. And secondly, they must fit in within our national guidelines. Right now, because they don't have a major role in diagnosing the infection, so we are thinking that most uh, funding should be, you know, limited to day to day until we can actually find, uh, you know, clinical utility um, in, the, in the management of COVID. And by clinical utility, I mean that if the result is really going to impact a clinical management of that patient, then we would then consider, you know, funding it, uh, you know, within that COVID benefit. But for now, there is there are quite a, a significant limitations in terms of the positioning. But like I said, in terms of just understanding your previous exposure to COVID, um, you know, that that would be the positioning. And um, we just need to understand how it's going to play out in our environment. So those people who've gone for antibody testing and have come back with strong antibodies telling them they've had COVID, uh, they don't necessarily have to relax now and stop wearing masks. Oh, definitely not. Definitely not. And also, I think um, it's very important to just understand. So I spoke about sensitivity and specificity earlier on. It's important for us to understand that um, some of these, um, they may be highly sensitive and highly specific, but because um, of the timing of the infection, if you're wanting to use them for diagnosis, you know, they will give you a false negative result, meaning that you have the infection, but they tell you you don't have the infection. But there's another, you know, aspect of it where they will also, uh, they may also say you've got the infection when you actually do not have the infection. The reason for that is because you're looking at antibodies uh, to coronaviruses, um, and some of them may not be specific to SARS-CoV-2. Um, so remember, there are other coronaviruses that cause, uh, you know, that are responsible for the common cold. So we call that cross-reactivity where you might actually be labeled as COVID positive when you actually 
does have antibodies for you know from other uh, coronavirus infections that you might have had. So so they are not perfect, uh, but I think the ones that um, are being evaluated for registration in our country um, are highly specific and highly sensitive. But uh, like I'm I'm saying, they still have limitations in you know in determining whether the person uh, is acutely ill or not. And the other important thing is that some of these uh, test kits also will not tell you if you've got, um, you know, they'll tell you you've got antibodies, but they don't tell you about the quality of the antibodies. So it, you, might not, you might not have neutralizing antibodies, meaning that if you are, you know, exposed, you can still be infected. Um, and uh, so those are some of the, of the things I think people should be aware of when they think about antibody testing. Yes, you know, it's always tempting when it's a quick thing, you know, 15 minutes and I have got my result. But what do you do with that result is what some of us are more concerned about rather than just having a test a result. It, it sounds almost as though you don't, you shouldn't even be taking the antibody testing because there's so many downsides to that. I think for me, a person should um, only do this, uh, you know, with the guidance of a healthcare professional and there must be a clear reason and understanding of what the test results are going to mean. Because if you've got a result that could be wrong, that could be right, uh, you just need to know how to interpret that and what are you going to use that information for. Um, And I think people need to just be educated. And I think these are some of the reasons why we come on these platforms to actually share some of this information so that people are informed. So when you've got an antibody test result, um, and that it says it's positive. Can you safely say, you know, it's really accurate? And also, if it say if it says you are negative, can you rule out infection? And definitely not. Inside COVID nineteen from Biz News, as we've just heard from Dr. Nematsurani, the focus is shifting from stemming coronavirus infections to a better understanding of how our bodies can fight it. Scientists are thus paying increasing attention to immunity, antibodies and T-cells. In this report, also compiled by Bloomberg senior editor Jason Gale, we'll hear from one of the world's leading minds in the field, Professor Alessandro Setti of the La Jolla Institute for Immunology in San Diego, California. In the race to study immunity to the virus, scientists first focused on antibodies, proteins that stick to and disable foreign invaders. That's because creating antibodies is the basis for most successful vaccines. So scientists are interested in learning who develops coronavirus antibodies, how long they stick around, and how effective they are at keeping people from getting infected again. But recent studies show there may be another weapon inside the human body that can rouse fresh antibody soldiers long after the first have left the battlefield. Bloomberg senior editor Jason Gale explains that T-cells may be part of the key to blunting the coronavirus contagion. Let's start with the antibody tests. That is the possibility of an antibody test. And showing that COVID antibodies fade quickly. But it's still not known if an antibody response will give future immunity. We're having the antibodies. What does that mean? It means these are people... We've heard a lot about antibodies during the pandemic. Having specific antibodies against SARS-CoV-2 may prevent us from catching the virus again. Some governments have suggested that they could serve as the basis for an immunity passport or risk-free certificate that would enable people to travel 
or to return to work assuming they're protected against reinfection. Problem is, there's currently no evidence that people who have recovered from COVID-19 and have antibodies are protected from a second infection. Scientists think they probably do, but there's no proof. What's more, these antibodies don't appear to stick around long, at least in people who have had a mild bout of the disease. Researchers in Los Angeles reported last week the rapid decay of anti-SARS-CoV-2 antibodies in patients who had a mild case of COVID-19. They said their findings, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, suggested we should treat with caution the idea of immunity passports, as well as the durability of any vaccines that are produced. Sounds kind of depressing, right? Well, maybe not. When it comes to the immune system, antibodies aren't a solo act. They're part of an entire orchestra of immune defenders that, collectively, make up our white blood cells. In the front row are the innate crew that respond to a viral infection immediately and crudely. Then there's a more sophisticated bunch of adaptive immune responders that remember what germs they've fought in case they have to do battle with them again. Antibodies are one component of that adaptive immune response, which immunization seeks to create without causing any disease. Which are the ones that are made from B cells and the ones that uh, bind to a virus and neutralize it. This is Professor Alessandro Sete. He's a researcher at La Jolla Institute for Immunology in San Diego, who's been studying the immune system for some 45 years. So if you have a high level of antibodies, you can neutralize the virus and avoid infection. Alessandro is interested in another component of the adaptive immune system, T-cells. We recognize and destroy infected cells. This is very important because when you have an infection, when a virus gets inside the cell, it becomes invisible for antibodies. The antibodies cannot get to it anymore. It's hidden inside the cell. Some T-cells directly kill these virally infected cells. Others play a support role, helping to regulate the immune system and remember microbial foes. Without a helper T-cells, the antibody response is weak. Uh, It doesn't bind very strongly, doesn't last very long. Good news is that Alessandro and his colleagues have found that when people are infected with SARS-CoV-2, they mount a strong T-cell response. And unexpectedly, he found... Some people who'd never encountered SARS-CoV-2 also had T-cells that recognised the pandemic strain, which was odd since this is a completely new virus. And so this was very puzzling. And we, we looked at this data from right, from left, from top, from bottom, and we really became convinced that this was absolutely real. Scientists in the Netherlands, UK, Germany and Singapore have reported the same thing. So it's really all over Uh, uh, different groups and different continents. So this was remarkable. So how do you explain how someone whose immune system has never seen this coronavirus before has some memory of it? The most reasonable hypothesis, but we want to emphasize that this is a hypothesis at this point, is that this is due to exposure to common cold coronaviruses. There are four of them in circulation that cause the usual sore throat, cough and runny nose that we routinely experience in winter. 
Alessandro says SARS-CoV-2 is like a cousin of these less dangerous coronaviruses. This virus is the evil cousin of the <laughs> common cold corona. So if you've seen these other uh, viruses recently, maybe you have a little bit of cross-reactivity. In other words, if you've encountered one of these cold-causing coronaviruses recently, could it give you at least partial immunity? Alessandro says scientists are looking into this and are especially interested in studying people living on an island off the coast of Tuscany, where the incidence of COVID-19 was very low, despite infected travellers from mainland Italy bringing it across. That island was reported to have had the year before a particularly bad common cold uh, uh, season. And so uh, some of the people I talked there, they speculated, well, maybe this has something to do, and I think that they were... uh, trying to set up a study to look at this in more details. Alessandro says more research is needed to determine whether pre-existing T-cells that cross-react with the SARS-CoV-2 virus may explain why some COVID patients are barely affected, while others get very sick and even die. Figuring out the role of T-cells in protecting against COVID is pretty important since these white blood cells will be critical for achieving durable immune protection from any vaccines that are developed. The immune system is all about memory, and so is vaccination. You create a a, a memory. So if maybe you have a pre-existing little bit of memory response, your immune system has a head start compared to some of it doesn't. We still don't know yet whether it's possible to develop vaccines that will stimulate potent antibodies against SARS-CoV-2 and prevent someone from getting COVID-19. According to Alessandro, the hope is that immunization will at least generate an immune response that lessens the severity of disease and the time it takes to recover from the infection. And this should go some way to blunt the pandemic. This has been episode 74 of Inside COVID-19. The full interviews of the highlights that are featured in this podcast are available separately on the biznews.com website or app or also by subscribing to Biznews Radio on Spotify or iTunes. Thanks for being with us. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.